after spending almost four years living in Spain, I was sent by my editor at the Sydney Morning Herald to cover the first food of the Orange District, that's F-O-O-D, dinner, in the surprisingly Orange Civic Centre in Orange, New South Wales. That was when I realised a lot had changed in this country in my absence. I remember being stranded in country towns for dinner before I went away. You had three choices, the RSL, the Greek cafe or the Chinese. The RSL stopped serving about six, as I recall, and the Greek was a long way from Athens, and the Chinese, usually my choice, would occasionally offer dubious delicacies like the deep-fried battered tomato that appeared on my plate one night in Singleton. So the most intriguing thing about the FOOD dinner in Orange wasn't that it was superb, the organisers had secured one of the greatest Australian chefs, Philip Searle, to plan and cook it, or that Philip had used almost exclusively food and wine from the district, but that 150 local Orange farmers and townspeople turned up and lapped it up. Welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast, sponsored by Pantera Press. Good Reading is a monthly magazine dedicated to books and reading and aims to help readers discover their next favourite book. You can find out more about the books discussed on today's podcast at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. Hello and welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast. My name is Greg Dobbs. Today I'm speaking with writer, journalist and novelist John Newton about his new book, The Getting of Garlic, Australian food from bland to brilliant with recipes old and new. John, welcome. G'day, thank you very much, Greg. If we use garlic as an imaginary dividing line between not having a cuisine and the point from which we begin to acquire one, what, in your mind, are the most significant events or moments in that transition? And I should say that you actually make a distinction BG and AG, BG and AG. before BG garlic and after garlic. But as somebody pointed out to me a while ago in, a, in an interview, I could just as easily have chosen olive oil. But olive oil is not quite as divisive, you know. Garlic is a divisive thing. It, uh, the English hate it. The Queen hates garlic and refuses to allow it to be used in the cuisine in the, in the palace. Although I recently heard of one chef saying, one royal chef saying, that's what she thinks. <laughs> But, but in 72, something happened which was really interesting for Australia and Australians. The jumbo jet arrived. And it happened to arrive at a time when we had a lot of disposable income. So it arrived and then marketing began to sell tours and to get people to leave the country, mostly for the first time. We hadn't been out of Australia. We stuck here. And so many of us went flying off in the big silver bird and we went to Europe, we went to Asia, and we went to all sorts of places and came back and we thought, well, goodness gracious me, you know, Luigi and, and Costa have the right idea. Because until then, we had denigrated their food and sneered at their food and, and, and told them not to eat so much garlic because it stank. I remember uh, my brother uh, travelling in that very time and mm. uh, uh, when he returned, bringing back all sorts of exotica and one of mm. them was Swiss chocolate. Lint chocolate. Uh, so this was a great discovery. Which you can now get in the supermarket. That's right. It's, it's ubiquitous now. <laughs> right. But at that point in time, yeah. it was, oh, you know. Yeah. And we have, I think we have, uh, we have writers like uh, dear Charmaine Solomon to thank for the wok. I mean, we started uh, around about from 1970 on, maybe a little bit earlier, we started buying thousands of woks. I tried to buy, I tried to find out how many woks we, we bought, but there, there's so many different importers, you couldn't find out one figure. But, you know, every house had a wok. I bet your house has a wok. 
think we've got two. (laughs) (laughs) Quoting from the book now, when did we move from using garlic with discretion, as you say, to what you describe as an assault on the senses? I think that was probably around around the seventies, and and I and I tie it to my own experience of of, of having a dish called uh, garlic prawns in the um, in the um, Costa Brava in Liverpool Street, and being absolutely blown away by the fact that this sizzling little bowl of prawns had as much garlic in that little bowl as my mother would use in two years. I was intrigued by something you report in the book. Uh, there were words spoken by a post-war Italian migrant who said, I could never understand why the Australians thought they were so much better than us when their food was shit. (laughs) That was a very good friend of mine. (laughs) Given that, why were post-war migrants uh, successful at selling their cuisine to us? Why why did it work for us? Interesting. I mean, something was pointed out to me. Recently I went to a a conference and and I was... uh, One of the papers given was about a... uh, uh, an Italian family called the Italianis, who started a cheese company called Perfect Cheese in 1935 in Melbourne. So, and they had to battle to, to to sell their cheese, and they got bigger and bigger and bigger. But they were here; those those Italians and those Greeks, they were here for a long time, and they were kind of getting getting ready for us to be ready, I suppose you could say. And once we'd gone away and come back uh, and realised that there was more to life than, as my wife calls it, charcoal chops and mushy veggies, then we were ready to, 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 to eat well. And one of the exemplars of this is a guy called Beppe Palazzi who had a restaurant called Beppe's. And I did a book with old Beppe too. And he, he told me, his poor old Beppe died a few years ago. Uh, his restaurant opened in 1956. Um, and that was one of the first, I think, of the restaurants that democratised dining. It became something where everyone could go. Uh, and Beppe, would, would, Beppe and his wife would go out and, uh, and uh, you know, bring back mussels, which were highly exotic then, and, and say to the people that came to the restaurant, try this, and they'd say, what was that? What is that? And he said, don't ask until you've tried it. So he'd made them try it, then he told them what it was they were eating. So they, they ate mussels and they ate calamari and all these wonderful things that were total anathema to, 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 the, to the Anglo-Celtic palate. Beppi's really became an institution over the That's years, right, didn't it? Right. Yeah, but he was, he was in the forefront of that kind of, you know, saying, just try it. Don't tell them what it is, yeah, just give right. it to them. Yeah. If you tell them what it is, they won't eat it. <laughs> I want to talk about this notion of um, a national cuisine, uh, an idea that you put forward, and you state that a cuisine arises out of a food culture. Don't we have a food culture by now? I don't think so. I don't think so. Not in the sense... Not in that, see, see, one of the things I say in the book is that the idea, the idea that I explore of a food culture in that sense is very old-fashioned. Things have changed so much, right? So... We don't have a food culture in the old-fashioned sense. I mean, we don't have a food culture as, as the French do or the Italians do or even the Spanish do. Do we really need a food culture? No, we don't need it. That's, that's the point. I think what we have is even better than that. I think we have this sort of eclectic uh, thing that I, I call later in the book mongrel cuisine where we just grab stuff from anywhere and very clever chefs put it together well or very bad chefs put it together badly um, and that's what we've got now. We've got this amazingly eclectic uh, food. You seem to like to draw a connection between cuisine and culture. Mm. Uh, what's, what is, why is that connection so important to you? 
I think it is important. I think I think it. I don't think you can you can deny the fact that uh, that uh, f- that food has a lot to do with culture. I mean, it, later in the book, I go over the three epochs of Australian of the not just of Australian food culture, and I go back b- before 1788, and we have a look at the food culture that was here before. Uh, the indigenous food culture was a, 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 f- a food culture that relied on on what they called the, the dreaming or the everywhen. So they were very careful to keep things as they were and not to make changes. And then along came from 1788 onwards uh, the, 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 the first wave of migrants who just brought this, this, this terribly stupid form of agriculture here without thinking about what the land was like and they brought their own food. And in that period, from say 1788 to, let's say, to 1960-odd, the, the land was degraded badly by a bad form of agriculture. So the food had a huge impact on the land uh, and the culture. Now we're in a third epoch, which I think is the Mongol cuisine era, where, we, where we've started to, to realise that we should start to, A, think about looking after the land a bit better, B, we're starting to incorporate some of the foods that were growing here before into our diets. So that's, that's a positive step. Well, that brings me to another question, which is the dish you name as our only contender as a national a dish, dish. A regional dish. Oh, a regional dish. dish. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. Which is, this might come as a surprise to some people, the pie floater. What is it and why does it qualify? What on earth is it exactly? Well, it qualifies because only in... There, there is no such thing as a national cuisine, only a regional cuisine. I think that's the other thing that is important to 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 uh, to remember. Um, and I looked for regional cuisines uh, once when I had a column in the Herald, and you know you'd ask you'd ask your readers to, to and they sent all this stuff in. You know, somebody sent me a uh, that there was a hamburger in Byron Bay where they put a piece of uh, of um, tomato in the bun. I think that doesn't hardly registers as a, as a regional cuisine. And there's the lamington, except the lamington doesn't come from anywhere. You know, some people say Queensland, some people say there. So it's, a, it's obviously an Australian invention, but it doesn't come from anywhere. The only one I could find was this pie floater. Now, the pie floater is a pie that floats on a sea of mushy peas. And the, the real refinement of it is it must be upside down. And the only place that it is found, well, the only places it is found, are various pie carts in Adelaide. If you go to Harry's Café de Wheels here, he'll pour his peas on the pie. That's the difference. I was wondering what the difference yeah. was because I have, I've never sure. eaten a pie floater, but I have seen them yeah. and wondered what the difference might be and why you choose to call that a regional Because it's only Adelaide. Dish. Only yeah. in Adelaide is the upside-down pie plomped on the peas. So what other things that you regard as uh, qualifying a dish as a regional dish? It comes from a place. Um, And that includes the produce? We call... So we have to make that distinction between produce and cuisine, don't we? we, we, No, but Beppe once said, um, uh, the produce doesn't make the cuisine, the cuisine makes the produce. And he talked about the fact that pasta is really only flour, water and egg sometimes, you know. So, but I would take something like, for example, something that we've uh, taken as one of our f- our favourite things to eat, spag bowl. 
Now, spag bol, in its original form, is a, a ragu bolognese uh, from Bologna. And it's not eaten with, with it's, it's never eaten with spaghetti. It's eaten with um, a different kind of pasta. And it comes from Bologna. And it is a, a dish that is originated in Bologna for whatever reason. Spag bol is just minced meat and tomato sauce and sometimes a bit of carrot over spaghetti, which is cooked everywhere. The first time my mother made spaghetti bolognese, sometime back in the 70s, mm. she added carrots to it. Mm. And I thought that was hilarious because, you know, me thinking I knew it all, thought, well, carrots don't belong to spaghetti bolognese. Years later, yes, I discovered that, that actually you can put carrot and a number of other things in as well. My friend, uh, I have a close friend who's a chef called Steve Manfredi, and I did a book with his mother, and she gave me her recipe for uh, ragu bolognese, and it had um, chopped meat, not, not minced meat, but one of the other things it had in it was all the gizzards uh, from the chicken, and the comb chopped from the from the cock a chopped came from the cock goes in there too to give it a bit of bit of i think it's one of those dishes that you probably shouldn't tell everybody the ingredients (laughs) otherwise they won't like it Uh, this book also contains quite a number of recipes Mm. Uh, at first glance i sort of thought are they purely academic or are they actually really tasty (laughs) if i were to attempt some of these what would be your advice both in in the way i think about them and then the way i prepare them there are dishes here that you're not supposed to cook and they're only there to uh, illustrate a point. I mean, um, uh, there's a young friend of mine called Callan, Callan Smith, who was the youngest um, entrant in MasterChef. Bloody MasterChef. I never watch it. But, you know, he's a lovely boy and he did very well. And he would have done better if he hadn't been so young. But his recipe when, it arrived, when I got it was six pages. You look at it and you think, how do you cook that? There's one from a guy called Sean Quaid, same thing. But there are other dishes. Uh, uh, I have made uh, steak Diane. I love making steak Diane. If you make it well, that's from Beppy. Uh, there's uh, a lovely. You can have a crack at uh, at uh, chicken andouille gumbo uh, from from the Cajun bit of the book, where I was explaining, you know, how cultures not much older than we are have their own cuisines. Um, uh, there's a lovely one from all these gambas alquio or, or garlic prawns you can do my version I couldn't I couldn't find the sh- I, I met the old chef from the Costa Brava and I never and he he disappeared I couldn't find anyone who knew him there's one from Neil Perry which I've made which is a lovely one with uh, fried flathead fillets with turmeric potatoes and tzatziki which is that kind of mod Oz thing of you know bringing things together very simple dish but but lovely to make and you know there are there are those sorts of things and I th- the mulligatawny soup which is Charmaine, a friend my, friend, my friend Charmaine O'Brien uh, made and served me. Uh, and that's an interesting dish too because that is the result of the English being in India. It's, it came back like Kedgeri, it came back from India. We don't have any of those little fusions of things that, that, that have stuck. You know, there, was, there, was a, there was a little cake shop in, uh, in uh, Chinatown that's now closed, unfortunately. That, you, know, you, know, you know a Cha Siu Pao? It's a, it's a beautifully uh, barbecued pork in a lovely sauce and it's in a, a, a white bread, a soft steam bread, bun. steam yes. bun. This guy made a char siu pie and it was fantastic. It was a meat pie filled with char siu and it was just one of those things that should have stuck and become real but he just, when, he, when, he, when he sold the restaurant, it went away. When he sold the, the cake shop, it went away. The next thing I wanted to explore was... Uh, 
this idea of our place in Asia. Uh, as I recall, 1992, mm. Paul Keating delivers a speech uh, which suggests that uh, our ties shouldn't remain with Europe and, and the British, but we should actually recognise that we live in Asia or more specifically, that our destination as a nation lies in we Asia. We are part of Asia. Part I of Asia. Uh, Asia and yeah. the Pacific, I think. I think, I, I think that's reflected in the food we eat, you know, and, and, and the curious the curious proliferation of Thai uh, restaurants. And also, I guess it's the, the boat people, the 1970s boat people. The boat people came out here, the Vietnamese, the Vietnamese. Well, that was interesting because the Thais came here in, in rather small numbers and had a disproportionate number of restaurants for some reason. And, and the Thai food has more or less taken over from Chinese food in the country, towns. It was once the ubiquitous Chinese restaurant. Now it's the ubiquitous it's Thai, absolutely. With, with a punny name. Yes. Thai Mion or something yes. like that. Titanic. <laughs> Titanic, yeah. Then along came the, the Vietnamese, and they were, they, were, they were all allowed in by Malcolm Fraser, I think. And then they were, they were unceremoniously dumped in Cabramatta, uh, and they, then we then turned our back on them. And, of course, they got into all sorts of trouble. There was a terrible, uh, terrible problems with drugs and unemployment and overcrowding, all those sort of things. There's a wonderful book by a woman called Pauline Nguyen, who is part owner with her brother and her husband of the Red Lantern restaurants. And this book, I forgot what it's called, Tales of the Red Lantern. And it's a beautiful book about growing up as a Vietnamese kid in Cabramatta and and her father who was a terrible disciplinarian and, and how she escaped all that but gradually and and what what she said was that the Vietnamese were very timid about being here they didn't want they didn't want to stick up they didn't want to stand up above the crowd but as they became more and more you know like like her, her she, she and her brother as they became more confident about being Australian they began to, to give us their food and, and there's more and more Vietnamese restaurants out. we come to like and appreciate other cultures once we come to like and appreciate their food. I think that's quite true. I think it's very much the yeah. case with Vietnamese food. Oh, yeah. uh, for example, you know, the, the rice paper roll, I mean, it's just part of what we eat these days. Yeah, that's right. And uh, back then, unknown, mm. but in some ways it, it's a bridge to a culture. It did take a while, didn't it? it, 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 it was the, 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 the Thai thing was quite early. Um, as I said, quite curious, seeing there are very few ties here. And then the Vietnamese thing happened. Japanese food um, became, is becoming more and more important. Bricolage is a word that comes from um, Levi Strauss, who used it for people bringing things together. Uh, and, it's, it's like a, it, and it's a word that comes from the French um, a handyman, uh, who will just use whatever's nearby to do something. And I and Levi Strauss used it in this particular way and I think it's very interesting for Australian food because that's how people like Peter Gilmore uh, cook because they sit, I can imagine them, I see them sitting in their kitchens and they think, well, I'll have a bit of that and I'll use some of that Korean thing there and I'll, I'll put something Japanese in there and, oh, I grow, uh, I grow almond trees and my... Uh, on my land, so I'll use some some unformed almonds, some green almonds, which are lovely and you know and and soft. So he puts all these things together. And I'm sure he makes mistakes when he does so, but you know that that becomes a dish for him. It uh, seems to perfectly describe uh, the way we cook, I suppose, yes, or the way co Australian cuisine has developed, yeah. and the way I cook at home too. 
I'll have a little bit of this, and, I, and they say, oh, I'll, and I'll give it to people, and they say, that was wonderful, what's the recipe? I say, I don't know, I made it up. You know, I just had stuff lying around in the kitchen. <laughs> and as a concluding uh, mark, I was very interested in your, uh, well, I guess disparaging marks about imported garlic, and myself being a bit of a fan of Australian produce and always wanting to seek out Australian garlic, it's not that easy to find. No, it's not. No, it's not. But it's going to get easier. Um, there's some over there that I buy from my greengrocer in Sydney, uh, the best greengrocer in Australia as far as I'm concerned, Galuzzo's, plug. <laughs> but what about Frank's in Haberfield? Frank, oh, I love Frank, and Frank is very good. But I think Galuzzo's best got the best tomatoes in Sydney. You're quite right, and he's got mates who grow them for him. Yep, yep, yeah, that's quite true. No, Frank is a lovely bloke and a lovely grant. But Galuzzo's is a bigger operation. Um, and they've got some garlic, which funnily enough is from Queensland. But curiously enough, it is grown for the climate, and that's what we're doing. We're learning how to grow the right variety of garlic for the climate. That's the first thing we're doing. And the second thing we're doing is we're learning how to keep it in an environment cool and dry so it can last longer. And we'll eventually have more Australian garlic, um, and we'll eventually have it spreading longer. Over the over the years, such a premium product. Yeah, yeah. No, no. See, seek out the Australian stuff and demand it. Um, you know, if you have to shop at at, at, a, at a big supermarket, scream at them until they stock Australian garlic. John Newton, thanks for joining us today, and thank you very much. The Getting of Garlic: Australian Food from Bland to Brilliant with Recipes Old and New by John Newton is published by New South and is available at GoodReadingMagazine.com.au and all good bookstores. My name's Greg Dobbs, and thanks for listening.